So take your Bible and open to John 19. It's where we find ourselves this morning, John 19, starting in verse 31. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. John 19. Verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who is seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, and about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it, in, bound it in linen wrappings and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you to uh, come before you in thankfulness and ask that you would bless our time in your word, uh, that we would come away from our study this morning again with a greater love for our Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a greater appreciation of him and you and the great kindness and mercy uh, that you show to us and that you make available to all men. So exalt yourself and exalt Christ as we study your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, a special welcome to you if you're a new or returning student. We're glad you're here. We hope that you would consider to make Cornerstone Bible Church uh, your home, uh, uh, church home, away from home when you're uh, here at university. Uh, if you were not with us last uh, Lord's Day, you might want to go back onto the website and listen uh, to the message I gave uh, last week as I gave a number of identifying marks that you should look for when you're trying to pick a new church home. Uh, things such as you need to find a church where they have a high view of the scripture. A church that has a high view of the scripture. A church that has a high view of God. A church that has a high view of the person of Jesus Christ. A church that is committed to expository preaching that just works through book after book, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, word after word. It allows you to hear uh, from the head of the church, that being the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You do not need entertainment. You do not need entertainment. You do not need warm stories. You need Christ. And it's the word of God that takes you to the person of Jesus Christ. You do not need soft preaching that uh, caters to your felt needs. You need to have your flesh slain and the new created you in Christ raised up and challenged to hunger and thirst for righteousness and a deeper relationship with God in Christ. You need to find a church where they worship both in spirit and in truth as but per the command of Christ in John chapter 4, 23 and 24. And when we come to that uh, worshiping in spirit and truth, speaking about music, 
uh, is kind of my thought there. And, and while it's true that music can stir the emotion, we here want to challenge your mind with the truth. We want to inform you with the truth. We don't want to manipulate you. So here we tend to sing a lot of hymns. Uh, Colossians 3, 16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing with one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. We tend to sing more hymns here than praise choruses because hymns are, tend to be more uh, deliberately didactic, and that meaning they're filled with teaching, better teaching, better doctrine. We sing old hymns, we sing modern hymns, uh, again, because they tend to better fulfill the biblical mandate to worship our God in spirit and in truth. They teach, they admonish, they encourage, and we do that with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Find a church that uh, is under the New Testament authority, and that's clearly seen in all of their ministry and their structure uh, and their administration and their church government. Uh, find a church that practices biblical male leadership. Uh, find a church that practices church discipline. Find a church that holds to a higher regard to uh, the person of God and to his word than they do the opinion of men. Uh, find a church where each individual member of the congregation is actively exercising the spiritual gifts that they have been giving in the given in the body of Christ for the spiritual good of others. And that you can join likewise in and use your spiritual giftedness, a giftedness that God has given to you, because you need to be actively involved in your local fellowship when you're uh, away at university. You need to be involved. Find a church that places an emphasis on evangelism and discipleship. A church that genuinely loves uh, one another in a place that will come and love you and care for you and, and do you again spiritually good and watch carefully after your soul uh, while you're away from home and at university. Now look, no church is perfect, and we're certainly not, but we try to attain to those standards. So again, if you missed last week, you might want to just go back and pick up the message and listen carefully, because obviously uh, there was much more in it than that just very quick overview. Uh, you, you need to be a part of a good church fellowship. You need to be a part of a good church fellowship. Do not go to university and hide out. Don't go to some big mega church and hide out. Get involved open the Bible, let the word of God teach you, let godly men and women come and be a part of your life and challenge you. And the last thing I said to people here last week, listen to it, call your mom. She needs to hear from you, all right? You're excited, you're gone to university, that's great, good for you, call your mom. She spent a lot of years raising you and she needs to hear from you more often than you think, right? So remember her. Now this morning, we're back here in John uh, chapter 19, and we've been working our way through John, if you've been with us for a long period of time, especially the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, uh, the, the ecclesiastical trials, the uh, uh, public trials, and, and then the crucifixion. We spent a lot of time on that. And we've gone pretty slow through the material, and I'm doing that intentionally because it's so rich and it really deserves our careful attention. And, and again, as we come to our text this morning and start to work our way through it, the Lord has died. The Lord has died. And John, he is focusing, as the writer, he's focused on the events of the cross, trying to bring the magnificence and the glory and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ to the forefront. And we've seen the, the glory of Christ on display in the events of the cross through a variety of different issues. Uh, for example, the fulfillment of specific Old Testament prophecies uh, that occurred there. We've seen the glory of Christ in the superscription written by Pilate and placed above the head of Christ on the cross. Again, the Father attesting to the entire world who that person there is on that center cross and the father attesting to the entire world the innocence of his son what's his crime 
He's committed no crime. The reality is he's the king of Israel. We saw the glory of Christ on display in his selfless love while he's suffering beyond our comprehension on the cross. He's still caring, uh, caring for others, uh, most specifically his mother. And then last time we saw the supremacy of Christ or the sovereignty of Christ, the glory of Christ expressed in, in the, the death of Christ as he literally wills his own death. He literally wills his own death. Look back up at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When therefore he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I mentioned the fact uh, that when it says Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit, it, it is a demonstration of his supernatural power. It's a demonstration of a supernatural power because no mere man has the ability to choose the moment of their death, right? No mere man has the ability to choose the moment of their death. And if somebody comes along and says, well, what if a man chooses to commit suicide? As I told you last time, if a man does that, then he's given power of death over to the bullet. He's given the power of death over to the poison. He's given the power of death over to the fall as he jumps from a large building to the ground, etc. Listen, no mere man has the ability to choose the moment of his death. In fact, that's exactly what the scripture says in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 8.8, 8, no man has the authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of his death. You need to understand that. No man has the power over the moment of his death. No man has the power to dismiss his life or to send away his spirit. Now, we understand that death is an intruder. Uh, it, it casts a shadow over every aspect of our existence. It, it fills men with dread and despair. Uh, it is undisputable certainty of life that one day your life is going to come to an end. Right? Save for the rapture of the church, one day your life is going to come to an end. Job 14.1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. 2 Samuel 14, verse, verse 14. For we shall surely die and like, are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Rhetorically, the psalmist asks in Psalm 89, verse 48, what, can a man, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Ecclesiastes 3, 2. There's a time to give birth and a time to die. Psalm 90, verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or of due strength, 80 years that their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Speaking of the reality of the shortness of death, 1 Peter 1, 24, for all the flesh is like grass and its, uh, uh, its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off. James 14, 14, or 4, verse 14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. One day your life is going to come to an end. One day your life is going to come to an end. The writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for man to die and once after, it's appointed for man to die once and after this comes the judgment. All men die. All men die because the wages of sin is what? Death. And all men are sinners. Through Adam... Uh, Paul's writing Romans chapter 5 verse 12 through Adam sin entered into the world 
death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is a reality. Death is an enemy. And obviously, death is something that is greatly feared. In fact, the Bible pictures death metaphorically as the king of terrors. The king of terrors, Job 18, 14. Hebrews 2, verse 15 talks about the fear of death that subjects men all their lives to slavery. Psalm 55, verse 4, My heart is in anguish with me or within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Men fear death, and rightly so. And men fear death, and they, and they live in slavery to that fear all of their lives because most men have no idea what comes next. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, after death comes judgment. And I think, honestly, that's why most men fear death uh, in, in a great part, because deep down inside, believer, unbeliever, whatever you say, all men know that God exists. So whatever you want to, whatever kind of game you want to play with yourself on the reality or the known reality of God, God says all men are, are, know him by revelation and by uh, creation. Men are accountable to God. And again, that's why I think men fear death. Because they know deep down inside they are accountable. Deep down inside they know that one day they're going to stand before their creator. They're going to give an account and they know they've fallen short. They know they've fallen short of God's demand of perfection. Therefore, again, rightly, all men fear death. It's appointed in a man wants to die after this comes judgment. For the unbeliever, they're going to be resurrected to eternal punishment. That will be their judgment. For the believer... We're going to be resurrected, that's true, but we're going to be resurrected to eternal glory because there's now what? Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation. Amen. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the great hope of the gospel. Jesus Christ has taken away our wrath. Jesus Christ has utterly defeated death. And again, men live in fear of death because they're going to stand and give an account before a holy God. And men fear death because in truth... Not only are they going to give an account, but listen, men fear death because nobody knows when it's going to come. Nobody knows when it's going to come. Nobody can control when it comes. No mere man can control the day of his death except this one man, Jesus Christ, because he's no ordinary man. He's in control of everything. He's in control of every aspect of his life. He's in control of every aspect of his living. He's in control of every aspect of his dying. Throughout his ministry, he demonstrated that power, the power that he had over life. He raised people from the dead. Very familiar uh, chapter, very familiar words to Martha the, uh, at the resurrection of her brother Lazarus. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's speaking about his death being the means that he would grant to men eternal life, those who repent and place their faith in him. John chapter 14, again in the upper room the night before he's uh, uh, crucified. John 14, verse 19, a little while after, he says, In a little while the world will behold me no longer. But you will behold me because I live, you shall also live. And that day you shall know that I am my Father, and my Father is in me, and I in you. He's saying, look, there's coming a day where I'm going to die, and it's coming very soon, and the world's not going to see me, but you're going to see me again because I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to defeat death. And then I'm going to provide resurrected life for all those who repent and believe upon him, or believe upon me, right? Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, our, uh, our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life 
and immortality and light through the gospel. Paul to the Corinthians, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. When this perishable will have been put on imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ defeated death. And again, no mere man has power over death, his own death, the moment of his own death, except this one man, Jesus Christ. And since death is an absolute certainty, you would think that all men everywhere would do whatever they could do to rush to the side of this one person who has such power over life and such power over death. But again, most men do not do that because in the insanity of sin, although they know their death is coming, although they know that they're accountable to God, although they know that they have offended this God, this holy God, whom they're going to stand before and give an account for the life, men deny the reality and the certainty, the finality of their own coming death, their own mortality, because they love their sin. John 3, 19, men love the darkness darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil, right? The light has come into the world and men have rejected the person of Jesus Christ. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So again, unless a man repents, unless a man uh, turns away from his love for sin, they're going to perish. You'll perish. You'll face the eternal condemnation and eternal wrath of a holy God because you stand guilty before a holy God. Because again, apart from Christ, no man will escape this God who rules the universe. And God declares that all men would come to this truth. He desires that all men would come to a knowledge of this truth. God, out of his great kindness, desires that men would know him as Savior and not as judge. Because that's, again, why, that's why John writes the, uh, the gospel. I've I, I probably said it a hundred times at least. John 20 and 31, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. If you don't know that verse, you need to know that verse. And you need to know the person behind that verse, the person who's, who John is writing to. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing you might have life in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now again, Jesus is in absolute control of everything in his life, all aspects of his life. Men from the very beginning of his life pursued him, tried to kill him, right? And they were unsuccessful. Jesus is in control of everything. He's in control of all aspects of his life. He is in control of even his death and the timing of his death. You remember back in John 10 and 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. So again, as I told you, when you come to the events of the cross and you start looking at it, nobody takes Jesus' life from him. At the cross, he is there voluntarily laying down his life. He is a willing sacrifice. He is standing in the place, taking the punishment that is due each and every one of us because of our own sin. And he is standing in our place, taking that punishment that is due us because of our sin against the Holy God. In order that we who would place our faith in him, would repent of our sin, place our faith in him, we might be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. That's why Christ is there. And again, no man by his own will can determine the moment of his death. 
No man can determine the time of his own death. And just as no man has the ability to defeat death by way of resurrection, again, except this one man, Jesus Christ. Because, again, he's no mere man. He is God incarnate. He is God come in the flesh, the one who has power over death, power over life. Uh, and that's an indisputable fact of reality. So, again, John's writings, though we might see that, John's writings all through his gospel, that we might see the glory of Christ in all aspects of his life. Uh, again, if you go back to the arrest there in the garden, he was in control of the, his own arrest. He was in control through all the sham trials. He was in control of what would happen when he died. He was in control at the time of his resurrection. And here specifically this morning, he's in control of the events surrounding his burial. So when we come to the burial of Jesus Christ, I think it tends to be one of those sections of Scripture that we kind of skip over, uh, perhaps because of over-familiarity with it, and, and maybe not even understanding the full importance of it. Thinking maybe it's just something that has to happen at the cross before the resurrection, but it's much more than that. It's an, an important, a really important portion of Scripture. There's a lot happening at the burial of Jesus Christ that deserves our careful attention, especially, again, the fact that Christ is in control of all of it. Now, all through his life, he manifested his divine power, right? Through his miracles, through his healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. But nothing more clearly reveals the greatness of the power of Jesus Christ than his dying, his burial, and then his resurrection. And again, for all men, the most unsettling aspect of death is it always comes as a surprise. It always comes suddenly. It always comes unexpectedly. But not in the case of Jesus Christ. He controls it. He's in charge. He lays his, da his life down in his own initiative, in his own timing. He cries out, it is finished. He bows his head. He gives up his spirit. His spirit, because again, he's in absolute control of the precise moment that God has called for in the predetermined plan of salvation. He's in charge of the exact moment that he will give up his spirit, the moment he will die. So when Christ cries out and is finished, it's not the death of a victim, but it really is the death of a victor, because Christ is victorious over all. Now, I told you that Jesus dies much sooner than a men, most men normally died on the cross. He's crucified the third hour, according to uh, Mark 15, 25. That's about 9 a.m. in the morning. He dies in the ninth hour. That's about um, uh, 3 p.m. So Jesus is on the cross only for about six hours, and he dies. Normally, men, it wouldn't be unusual for men to languish on the cross for two or three days. Uh, the robbers that are crucified next to Jesus uh, are still alive after Christ dies. In fact, Pilate's surprised when Joseph of Arimathea shows up and asks for the body of Jesus. He was surprised that Jesus had died so soon. So Pilate sends a centurion to determine whether or not Jesus was in fact really dead. And then only did he grant permission for Joseph to take the body. And I think an important aspect of the burial of Christ is that not only that it fulfills scripture, but the burial of Christ points out and proves something that is so completely obvious we stumble over it. But the reality of the fact is that the burial of Christ, listen, Jesus Christ is really dead. Jesus Christ is really dead. Now, there are a lot of people throughout the history of the church, and a lot of people even today, that try to promote an ancient heresy uh, that, again, kind of flourished in the early church, but it's still around today. It's called docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, docetism. And what that, that heresy says is that Jesus really did not have a physical body, dokeo, he only seemed to. He only seemed to. It was a heresy that arose out of a dualistic philosophy that said 
matter is inherently evil and God being inherently good, pure and infinite, God can never associate with matter. Therefore, God can never become a man and therefore God could never suffer physically. Now, obviously, it's a tremendous theological error and a tremendous theological error concerning the nature of the person of Jesus Christ and great theological battles through the history of the church ensued. It was eventually, this, uh, this heresy was eventually condemned at the Council of Chalcedon as a heresy in 451. Because, this is why it's important, because if Jesus didn't have a real human body that died, then Jesus is not really God incarnate. If Jesus didn't have a real human body that died, then he's not really God incarnate, God who became a man. And then he could not be the perfect substitute. Because what we need, we need both God and man. We need perfect holy God and we need perfect sinless man. If he didn't have a real body, then he didn't die. If he didn't have a real body, he didn't die. And if he didn't have a real body that actually died, then he didn't what? He didn't raise from the dead, literally, physically. So it's a major issue. In fact, Islam teaches, all, all the people you hear, it says, well, we worship the same God. Is Islam, we do not worship the same God. Allah has no son. And there's no one like this person, Jesus Christ. Islam says that Jesus did not die on the cross. That he only appeared to, he only seemed to die. Or some would say that he, somebody substituted for him. Well, who in the world is that? Right? They deny the incarnation of the Son of God. Uh, others have come along, and I'm sure you've heard this one. Others have come along, they promoted the lie that Jesus swooned his death. Somehow he suffered all that physical uh, punishment, all the, thing, all the things he suffered by being scourged and the whipping and the, and the, the physical problems uh, there on the cross, the crucifixion. And somehow he wasn't really, really dead when he was laid in the tomb. He was unconscious. He was in a coma. Uh, he, he, was, he was swooning, right? And, and somehow he was resurrected in the cool air of the tomb. And then when he appeared three days later, he convinced his followers that he had triumphed over death. But that whole line of thinking is also a lie. It's not only an attack on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's an attack on the deity of Christ, it's an attack on the power of the person of Jesus Christ, it's an attack on the truthfulness of the word of God, and it all comes from the pit, it all comes from the father of lies, just like all of these errors do, it comes from Satan himself. Listen, the burial of Jesus Christ proves the fact that he was really dead. Again, Pilate dispatches a centurion to go make sure that he's truly dead, Mark 15. Joseph of Arimathea, along with a man, Nicodemus, they're going to carefully prepare the body and put it, put it in a tomb and seal it with a large stone. The burial of Jesus Christ assures that Jesus is really dead. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a true resurrection. And again, it once again proves the deity of the person of Jesus Christ. It proves the fact that he is the Son of God, the one who really died, the one who really has power over death, the one who defeated death. You need to know that person if you don't. It's a pointer and a man wants to die, then comes the judgment. It's an indisputable reality of life that all men die. I, I encourage people, especially when I do funerals, I beg you, I beg people at funerals, pay attention. One day there's going to be a funeral and you'll be the guest of honor. And nobody wants to be the guest of honor, but one day it's a reality, and it's a reality for all of us. Take your life serious. Don't waste your life. 
Don't waste the gracious offer that God gives to men through the proclamation of the gospel, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the context of the day, the Romans had no respect for corpses. They'd either allow the corpse to rot uh, there on the cross, uh, rot in the sun, be torn apart by scavenger birds and scavenger animals. Or, for some reason, if they were to take the body off the cross they, they, uh, of a criminal, they'd throw it in the burning garbage dump at the end of town, the Hinnon Valley, uh, just south of Jerusalem. But God's not going to allow that to happen to his son. He's going to make sure that his body, the son of his body, is cared for and dealt with properly. And dealing with the body of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it has to take place in a three-hour period of time. Again, Jesus has to be dead and buried before the end of the day for two reasons. First, the Sabbath began at sunset or at 6 p.m. And, and, and he has to be taken down on the cross before then, prepared for burial, as not to profane the Sabbath. And secondly, he has to be in the grave before the end of the day on Friday in order to be in the earth at least three parts of three separate days, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, before his resurrection. Because that's what he said was going to happen. That's what he said was going to happen. Matthew 12, verse, four, verse 40. For just as Jonah was in the... Um, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the same thing in Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. He repeated it in Matthew 16, verse 22. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. Verse 23, they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, with all of that as background, let's start to look in the text here. All right, let's look. Start at verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's dead. His sovereign power, in his sovereign power, he has dismissed his spirit. Verse 31, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might, that they might be taken away. Now the Jews there in the context would be the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, the leaders of the nation, Caiaphas, Annas, and his uh, companions, all those who pressed Pilate to murder Jesus. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, the day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath is on what day? Saturday. Okay? The Sabbath is on Saturday. Here we go. It's a test question. What is the day before Saturday? It's not a... What? Well, a couple of you got it. No, it's not Tuesday. It's Friday. Right? Go with the first answer Friday. It's Friday. Sabbath is on Saturday. The day before is on Friday. Because it was the day of preparation, Jesus dies on what day? Friday. Not Thursday, not Wednesday. A lot of people have promoted these other kind of ideas. He dies on the day of preparation, which is a Friday. It's called the day of preparation because back in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23 to, to 30, God told the Jewish people to keep the Sabbath day holy. He meant that anything that needed to be done, any kind of work that needed to be done, uh, for the food that they needed for the Sabbath, they had to be done the day before. It had to be done on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, again, which was a Friday. When God provided manna for his uh, 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 children, he told them to collect enough uh, on Friday for two days, to eat it on Friday and Saturday. So 
Friday is the day of preparation. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. Again, uh, you have the evidence the fact that, that Christ is dead on Friday, and the Jewish religious leaders don't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Again, for the Jews, their thinking is that begins on sunset on Friday, 6 p.m. He says, for that Sabbath was a high day. It just means simply the Sabbath was the Passover. So the Jewish religious leaders want to try to keep the rules and regulations of the Passover. Now, obviously, the blatant hypocrisy is nauseating, uh, and, and the irony is great. So here are the Jewish religious leaders. They've just murdered the Son of God, right? They've just murdered the Lamb of God, the one who can, only one who can deal with the issue of uh, man's sin, the only one who has the power over sin and death, uh, the one whom, to whom the Passover has pointed. And one author says this. He says it's inconceivable that they would slaughter the Lord of the Sabbath in an effort to keep the Sabbath. But in their twisted thinking, that was the result, all right? The result of their twisted thinking, their twisted religious system. And that's the way it is, right? When you pervert truth, all you end up with is error and all kinds of perversions, right? So they want to keep the Sabbath. They're going to murder the Lord of the Sabbath. Anyway, they want to keep this religious festival, and they want to celebrate the Passover. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, again, back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 says, If a man committed a sin worthy of death, and he used to be put to death, you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on that tree. You shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So again, the, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is nauseating. A lot of people who have been hanged on a tree, a lot of people who have been crucified by the Romans all around Jerusalem. But here's the one who the Jewish religious leaders themselves wanted hanged on a tree. Right? They're the ones who encouraged Pilate, pushed Pilate to murder uh, an innocent man. And Jesus hanging there on the cross on this day violates their thinking about the Deuteronomy 21-22 passage that I just read. So they want to get him down. So on this day, on this Passover, they want to make sure that they follow all the rules. Now, historians would tell us previously that that wasn't always the case, but today it is. On this Passover, they're going to make sure that they obey all the rules and all the regulations. So that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. He asked Pilate, or they asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, again, the men have only been on the cross for six hours. Again, it wasn't unusual for men to languish several days on the cross. But the Jewish religious leaders want these men dead. And they have to be dead, and they have to be dead before they can come down on the cross because no one's escaping crucifixion. So that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a high day, they asked Pilate that the legs, their legs, the, the people who are being crucified, their legs might be broken. It's interesting, interestingly, on the shocking side, but the word broken means literally broken into pieces. It, it means literally shivered into pieces, splintered. Now again, remember a man who's crucified, uh, he's being suspended from the earth, he's hanging off the wounds in his hands and, and his feet, and his, uh, the internal organs are being pressed down by, by gravity. It's very difficult for him to breathe. The only way that he can breathe is by pulling up with his hands or pushing up on, his, uh, uh, on, the, on the wounds and the nails in his feet. And the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, again, more likely the chief priests, have asked Pilate that the legs of these persons would be broken so that their death might be immediate. So evidently this, this breaking of the legs was not completely uh, unusual. 
uh, sometimes in this barbarous mode of execution, it was used when necessary uh, to make a quick end of the victim. Now, again, J.C. Rowell points out in his commentary, this whole thing would not have been done unless the Jews had asked for it. And again, the verse here, this whole section, really is another wonderful example of the way which God can use even the most wicked of men in an unconscious fashion to carry out his purposes to promote his glory and the glory of his son. Because if the Jews had not interfered this Friday afternoon, Pilate more than likely would have allowed those bodies to hang there, including the body of Jesus, uh, on the cross till Sunday, Monday, or even longer until they rotted. So in the sovereignty of God, he's using these wicked religious leaders to secure the Lord's burial on the very day that he dies to allow the accurate fulfillment of the Lord's famous prophecy, John 2 and verse 19, destroy this temple of my body and in three days I'll raise it up. Again, proving upon his death, burial, and resurrection, this person, Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Christ, he is the son of the living God, and everything is happening here at his burial exactly as he predicted it would. So again, God in his providence is orchestrating the events. These enemies of Christ who have interceded for uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ are going to also intercede uh, for his burial. And, and they're doing this unknowingly, but they're doing this in a way that actually provides for the crowning miracle of the person of Jesus Christ, that being his resurrection. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. And what the Romans would do to break their legs has been described by writers as frightfully inhuman. They would use a large wooden mallet or an iron mallet and they would smash the legs of the victim until their leg bones were nothing more than splinters. So once their legs were smashed into splinters, they could no longer push up and draw breath. Therefore, they would very soon suffocate. So it goes with on saying the pain now, that would be very much in the fullest extent of the word excruciating. In fact, Alfred Edersheim in his classic book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah says the legs were broken in this manner. He said in a way, here's his quote, in a way to increase the punishment, in a way to increase the pain and the suffering. Because again, sometimes men languish on the cross for days. So if whatever situation arose where they needed to hasten the death of the people, uh, that were on the cross, they wanted to increase the suffering as much as possible. Because if you were shortened, or if your stay on the cross was somewhat shortened, that would be somewhat of a relief. So in a satanic uh, cruelty, the Romans wanted to take away that relief. You're not going to stay on the cross, so we're going to make it even worse for you in these last few moments of your life. Verse 32, it says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Here again is another sign of the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ and his death. All three men uh, crucified at the same time, uh, and uh, they had all been on the cross the same am amount of time. Uh, the two thieves are still alive, but Jesus is already dead. And the Jews making this request to Pilate shows, again, they were not expecting uh, these men to die so quickly unless their death was hastened. So again, Jesus is already dead. No man takes his life because he's the one who's in control of his life. He's the one who lays down his life. And these men who are the executioners, the Romans, they're trained executioners. They're not making a mistake here. Pilate had given permission 
to have the legs broken to hasten death. And most certainly they would have carried out this or, these orders unless Jesus was already what? Already dead. And again, the fact that Jesus is dead before his legs were broken, again, validates the identity that this one on that cross is the Son of God. Again, he is fulfilling prophecy. Even in his death, he's fulfilling messianic prophecy because it says in Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. He keeps all their bones, not one of them. He keeps all of his bones, not one is broken. Psalm 34, verse 20. According to Exodus 12, verse 46 and Numbers 9, verse 12, no bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. And Jesus, of course, is the perfect fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And such, none of his bones would ever be broken. Soldiers therefore came, broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. Uh, J.C. Rowell has an interesting comment in, in his notes. He says this. He says, the penitent thief. Remember, the one who converts, the one who says, remember me this day. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. He says the penitent thief, the one who converted even while hanging there on the cross, had more suffering to go through before he entered the paradise. As the grace of God and the pardon of sin did not deliver him from the agony of having his legs broken. When Christ undertakes to save our souls, he does not undertake to deliver us from bodily pains and conflict with the last enemy. Penitents as well as impenitents must taste death and all its accompaniments. Conversion is not heaven, though it leads to it. That's a great statement. One who converted, he's still suffering right alongside the man who was impenitent, who did not repent. Soldiers therefore came, broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus or coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Uh, again, the Roman soldiers understood death when they saw it. Professional executioners, they were accustomed to death. Uh, they'd seen death in a variety of forms, wounds of every kind, dead bodies, uh, a variety of descriptions, they were trained to take away human life. That was their profession. They were, of all men, the least likely men to make a mistake about whether someone was dead or not. Again, professional executioners, experts in determining death, that's part of their job. And most certainly, they had nothing to gain. These are Roman soldiers. They had nothing to gain with lying about Jesus' death. So their testimony, the testimony that they give, the commander gives to uh, uh, back to Pilate in Mark chapter 15 verses 44 and 45 is irrefutable proof. Jesus is what? Jesus is dead. He is in fact dead. Coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. Now Edersheim calls this the death stroke. One final way to make sure the victim is going to die immediately. One final way to be quite certain, uh, certain of his death. Now, they already believe that Jesus was dead by appearance, perhaps even by touching him. But they're going to make quite certain that he's death by a thrust of a spear. Now, again, if the body was, a, this is a person who's swooning, right? If this is a person who's not uh, really dead, he's in a coma, or maybe he's faking it, whatever, uh, unconscious. They would give some kind of signs of life when jabbed with the spear, but Jesus doesn't because Jesus is what? Jesus is dead. So the question would be, if the soldiers already know uh, that Jesus is dead already, why do they deliver the death stroke to him? Answer, because it's a fulfillment of Scripture. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Drop down to verse 36. For these things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled. 
Not a bone of his shall be broken, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they've pierced. So again, verse 36 come out, comes out of Psalm 34, as I just said. And verse 37 comes out of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where God declared, I will pour out in the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, and will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. One prophet comes and says they won't break his legs. Another prophet comes and says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Everything's happening exactly as God intended. Everything's happening exactly as God said it was going to happen. Because the sovereignty of God is on display here. Nothing's happening by chance. God is in control. And God, again, is pointing out the fact that Jesus is the one whom the prophet spoke of. The, ones who, the one whom the, of whom the prophet spoke about. Uh, again, in that Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 statement. Listen, it's God who declares. It's God who declares. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And that's an affirmation that Jesus is none other than God incarnate. And the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy is going to be at Christ's second coming when a remnant of believing Israel are going to mourn over rejecting and killing Jesus, their Messiah, and their King. Now, there's a lot of material written on verse 34. Some of it's helpful, and a lot of it's not. One of the soldiers pierced his side of the spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. A lot of speculation by many that perhaps Jesus died from a literal broken heart or a ruptured heart, that under the intense weight of bearing all the sins of everyone who would ever believe that his heart literally ruptured. And men get that out of, uh, in part out of Psalm 69 that contains prophecies concerning the crucifixion scene. Psalm 69 verse 20 says, Reproach has broken my heart, so I'm sick. I look for sympathy, but there's none for comforters, but I found none. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Many thinking that since the second part of the prophecy is fulfilled, in uh, verse 21 of that uh, chapter, excuse me, most certainly the first part of the prophecies also come true, verse 20 of Psalm 69. Now, to be honest with you, I, I don't know that you can make a dogmatic uh, assertion to be true on that position. A lot of older commentaries, uh, commentators would hold to that position, that the Lord's heart literally burst within his chest uh, because of the tremendous mental, physical, spiritual agony of the sorrow associated with bearing the sin of all who would repent and believe upon him as the Father pours out his righteous wrath uh, and anger upon Christ for our sin. In fact, some of the older writers, even uh, when they start writing about the physical death of Christ from a medical aspect, uh, they would still tend to promote that position. Some of the newer articles, are a bunch of newer writers that have uh, examined the medical evidence that you can find from the scripture on the death of Christ, suggest that depending on perhaps the exact location, the direction, the angle, the thrust, uh, the puncture wound, etc., and so forth, that the resulting blood and water could have been from the piercing of the lung that it filled up with uh, fluid and then the piercing of the heart. But the reality is since John doesn't describe exactly the location of the wound or the angle of it and so forth, uh, we can only speculate about what structure might have been impaled by the act. So without an actual physical autopsy of the body, we can't, be, uh, we can't determine the exact cause of, uh, of death. The exact cause of death is uncertain. 
again, a lot of medical uh, evidence and writing uh, based on, on the assumption that the blood appeared first in the water. Uh, some suggest that the word order denotes prominence, not necessarily sequence in time. Uh, some suggest that John is demonstrating or emphasizing the prominence of the blood rather than the appearance of the blood preceding the water. Some men have said that the blood coming out first, separated from the water, speaks to coagulation, the fact of death that it has occurred, and just goes on and on and on and on. If you have nothing else to read and want something to read, you can read all kinds of stuff on, on, uh, on verse 34 here. We just don't know. We don't know the exact physical cause of death of the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, but what we do know that Jesus is actually what? He's dead. He's already dead. He's dead before the spear has been thrust into his side. He, he was already dead before the two legs of the, uh, the legs of the other two men were broken. And we know that the spear was thrust so deep into the side of, uh, of Christ, he could tell Thomas in John 20, verse 27, says, reach here your finger and, your, and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. The bottom line is Jesus is dead. Coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately there came out blood and water. Verse 35. And he who has seen has bore witness, and his witness is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. So again, John's an eyewitness to the events. He's giving testimony that is true. First-hand eyewitness testimony. He's not giving hearsay testimony. He's giving a sober historical account of the actual events. And the purpose for him giving a precise, accurate detail of what's happened is so that the reader might want, that the reader might believe. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing upon him, you might have life in his name. So again, the bottom line is Jesus is unquestionably dead. No one takes his life. He lays down his life. But now his body needs to be removed from the cross. And the question is, who would care for it? The answer is God will. God is going to send in his man, and he's going to have to deal with it quickly because, again, it's already late in the afternoon. It's 3 p.m. Jesus is dead. And Jesus needs to be in the, de it needs to be in the grave before 6 p.m. on Friday. So again, that the prophecy would be fulfilled, that he would be three days in the earth. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. Now, we don't know much about the city of Arimathea, where this man Joseph comes from. Uh, there's a bunch of different possibilities and locations that have been given by various commentators. Uh, we know it's a city of the Jews, and we know that it has to be fairly close to Jerusalem since uh, uh, this man Joseph has a grave outside the city. But we do know that this man Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. We get that from Matthew's account, Matthew 27, verse 57. We know he's a good man. We know he's a member of the Sanhedrin, and we know he's a man who did not consent to this plan in action against Jesus. He's a secret follower of Jesus uh, for fear of the Jews. And God is going to use this secret disciple, if you will, to again take care of the body of his dear son. And again to fulfill scripture. Isaiah 53, 9, speaking of Jesus, uh, Isaiah says, His grave was assigned with the wicked men, but he was with a rich man in his death. Again, the, the Jews uh, uh, would not allow criminals to be uh, placed in a tomb. 
Uh, the Romans, again, they don't care. They're going to leave the body to rot on the cross or they're going to throw the, the body in the burning uh, city dump at the end of town. But God is using this man who was fearful when Jesus was alive, who now somehow has gained great courage to identify with Jesus in his death. And with great courage, he's going to go and ask for the body of Jesus to be given uh, to him. He's going to go to Pilate so that he might bury him properly. Now look, Pilate has no compelling reason to do this. He has no compelling reason to grant the request. But again, after making sure that Jesus is dead, Pilate agrees to give the body to Joseph of Arimathea. And another man is going to come along, a man named Nicodemus. We met him back in chapter 3. He is the teacher of Israel. He's the one who's become also a secret disciple. He comes with Joseph uh, to help with the body of Jesus. Verse 39. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come uh, to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 100 pounds weight. So when they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb, which no one had been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So again, God is orchestrating all the events, all the affairs here at the burial of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to use these two men not only to uh, care for the body of his son, but he's going to use these two men to fulfill scripture. Not only where Jesus would be laid, but the fact that he has to be in the ground again three days to fulfill scripture. He's in the ground on Friday, that's day one. He's in the grave on Saturday, that's day two. He's in the grave on Sunday until the morning, that's day three. So for the Jews, any part of a day would constitute a day. The prophecy is, is therefore uh, being fulfilled. Christ has the power of his life. Christ has the power of his rest. Christ has the power of his dying. He has the power over the treatment of his body even after he's dead. He has power over his burial because, again, he's fulfilling scripture. Power over death because he's going to triumphantly rise from the grave. You will notice in the account here that you will not find the disciples anywhere. They're not here. Ridiculous men put forth ridiculous ideas that the disciples stole the body. Where are they? They're not here. They're not plotting to steal the body. They're, they're not plotting to fake a resurrection. They're nowhere to be found, but God is. And even here in the burial of Jesus Christ, it's the whole event is the supernatural intending of God the Father. It's his providence working out his sovereign will. And again, he is drawing attention to his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, to the reality of the fact that Jesus is indeed the son of the living God. Now, Lord willing, next time we'll continue to look at this burial because there's much more in the text for us to consider. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to read through and study this morning. And, and, and we're thankful for your love for us and the love of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for his power over life and death and so thankful again for your love to us and towards us. What a compelling picture the burial of Jesus Christ affirms the reality of his death. He had a real body who died a real death who really was raised from the dead. What a glorious Savior. What a great hope. Open our eyes to receive that truth and help our love and worship for you increase. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.